Welcome to the Worldwide Golf Shops Insider Podcast, episode 375. Hello, everyone. Tom Brussel here. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. And if you're a long-time listener, welcome back. Our special guest today joins us, courtesy of Titleist Golf. He's the head golf professional emeritus at Harmony Landing Country Club in Goshen, Kentucky, and he is the father of the two-time PGA champion, Justin Thomas, courtesy of Titleist Golf, Mr. Mike Thomas. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you with us today. Uh, good to be. Thank you. Mike, take us back, if you would, because you've got kind of got an interesting dynamic. Your, your father was a golf professional in the business and a great player. You're in the business. Your son's in the business. But take us back to when you got started. Obviously, your, your father had a big influence and in you falling in love with the game. But just talk about your early memories of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad being a club pro all those years, I just kind of grew up going out there all the time and hanging out and helping out even when I was a little kid. And then obviously I would hit balls and play and practice and do all the things the son of a, a club pro did. So it's kind of really all I really knew. I mean, I played some other sports, but mostly just, just golf was where it was. And so, you know, it was kind of natural for me to stay involved with the game and just kind of did the usual play golf in high school, play golf in college, and then got into golf business. I remember that. Well, I started playing in age 14 and pl- played in high school and college. But back in four- 14, my, I was at the course in, in town, the, the Muni, and our golf pro was a guy by the name of Edwin Watts. This is you know, before the Edwin Watts retailer. you know, And he had a small salary from the, from the city, but, and the shop was his. He merchandised he gave lessons he, he gave clinics i remember he brought patty bergen one time to play with our ladies champion anything to grow the game talk about your memories of that and how maybe that has maybe changed with the golf professional of say the 1970s to the golf professional of the of the 2020s yeah definitely um you know back in my dad there i don't think it was as much about growing the game you just accidentally got people in, involved in golf uh you know, back in that era, it was probably more about playing golf. I mean, you know, my dad played in a lot of golf tournaments and, and, uh, you know, was a successful player. And between he owned his own golf shop as I did once I was a uh, head pro. And, uh, so, you know, between playing and, and taking care of your, your business as, as far as owning the golf shop and then taking care of the members, uh, it didn't, Kind of once I got my my first job, um, it really became more and more, particularly with my involvement with the PG of America. I was officer and national director and everything, and grow the game became a very important part of both uh, you know the golf industry and, and and the business at my club is, is getting new golfers to to be involved in the game. How has the youth side of it changed? I remember. Back in the day, I mean, Edwin would, I mean, if we didn't have any money to buy a sleeve of balls, he would sell us one ball at a time. He'd break, break a sleeve up and do that. But today, it's, it's, it seems like it's changed so much with the, the access to the game and also monetarily, a lot of the kids may have some, but then some may not, hence the first tee, right? Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. I mean, junior golf has, has just exploded uh, 
you know, I remember when I grew up, when I look at a lot of the kids that I teach now, uh, I look back at, you know, when I grew up, you had two or three tournaments a year to play in during the summer. You didn't have anything in the spring and the fall. You just had, you had basically your state juniors and then two or three clubs along the way would just host a, host a junior invitational or a junior tournament and you'd go play in those or we'd do junior inter clubs. Uh, with other clubs, but you know, along came the uh, all the state golf associations promoting junior tours, and then of course the AJGA, and and there's so much opportunity now for young kids to just play it's so much competition, and you know that's why there's so much so much better when they when they come out of college is they've been competing at a, at a pretty high level for for quite a while, but definitely uh, access and, and money remains a barrier for for kids that are interested in golf so different now i mean people say oh you play college golf and i tell them i said listen if i had my game and back in the 70s today i, I might could make an intramural team you know because it's not yeah. only not only are these these are world-class athletes now but uh it's so international over here in the states too yeah no, no question i remember when when justin started playing more out of out of state when he was getting out of Kentucky and playing around the country, you know, we would say, see the same international players, whether it's from Australia or, or Mexico or where it was from, but the federations would ship those players over here. And, uh, is when it really like, whether I was playing, whether uh, I went to the U S kids or an AJGA event, it just, it just dawned on me that, wow, this is, there are people from all over the world at these golf tournaments that, you know, like you said, I think uh, my game back in the 70s and early 80s, I might not even have played college golf uh, with the skill level that I had. Well, you mentioned Justin. That's a great segue into my next question. You've given thousands of lessons to thousands of kids, but let's talk about that one who happens to be happens to be your kid. We've seen the videos when he was little, and you know, the plastic club and all that, but... Share your memories of that, Mike, because, I mean, you were behind the camera some, and, and your wife was too, but share what you remember about JT as a little guy and falling in love with the game. Yeah, I mean, he just, like, you know, when he was born, I was still playing a lot of section events and, and state opens and stuff like that and, and doing some traveling uh, when I could away from my job to play in tournaments. And so Justin was, you know, always out there as a spectator and then, you know, at a very young age, he kind of, you know, I'd take him out the golf course while I was practicing and, and while I was go play three or four holes at seven o'clock at night. And I just remember him wanting, wanting to whack a ball and I uh, got him a little club. So when I went out, he could, he could putt around or chip around with me. And that just evolved into, uh, he just wanted to hit balls. At all daylight hours, that's all he wanted to do was hit balls. And uh, his mother used to bring him out there, and he would just hit balls all day long while I was working. And he he would hang out until six or seven o'clock. He knew I wasn't available until then, and uh, he'd hang out just waiting for me to go play two holes or four holes, whatever whatever we could get in after work. Sounds eerily similar to what you did with your dad. <laughs> what? Uh... Yeah, no, what kind of lessons did you take from your father? I guess in, in you know what to do with with him, and, and maybe a bigger question: what not to do? Yeah, well, I would I would go with the what not to do first. Uh, you know, my, my dad was a, a an old school uh, dig it out of the dirt, and uh, 
he was very hard on himself, and and so therefore he was hard on anybody that uh, he taught. He was really, uh, really blunt, and uh, you know that he was blunt to himself, so he was blunt to everybody else. And so, really, kind of, you know, while I learned a lot from him uh, about different teaching things, along with different business things, uh, the aspect of running a golf operation, uh, you know, I just kind of learned what what I didn't like from his approach and, and I kind of took the opposite route with, with my son that, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were just always having fun and it was a, it was a game. It wasn't supposed to be work. And, uh, and, and I think that that has helped us have the relationship that we have had that, you know, I never had to press him to play. I never, you know, if I suggested something from a teaching aspect that he resisted a little bit, I just backed off and, and I knew he would, he would come back at a, at a later date and, you know, maybe ask me to expand on that or something. But, uh, you know, anytime he resisted something I had to say at a young age, I, I just backed off and let him do it however he wanted to. And the, you know, there's a difference in the young kids from being a good golfer to being a real good golfer, you know, and then, and then being a great golfer. And then you've got to where he is now, which is, you know, a world-class golfer, major champion. I've read somewhere where you were saying people were saying, "Oh, he's going to do this. He's going to do this," and you're like, "How do you know?" But I mean, was there a time when you realized that, hey, this kid is can really be something special? You know, to be honest with you, I just never looked at it like that. I just always, I always focused on, you know, is he having fun? And I focused on, you know, he's using up his time in a very constructive manner versus whether you're hanging out with hanging out at the mall or, or doing mischievous things that kids will do. You know, he just, he wanted to go to the golf course every single day of the week, all day long. And so I just focused on, you know, he was healthy, he was happy, and he was doing something he had a passion for. And I never projected out into the future of, you know, where this could could go. And, and quite honestly, I, I get that question a lot is, is when did I know? And I mean, the two answers that I always give is I know at every age, literally four, seven, 10, 12 and on at every age, he did things he should not have been able to do yet. Mm-hmm. And so that always kind of surprises me. And that always stuck in my mind. And, and the second answer I always give is uh, really when he made it through uh, Q school for the web.com is when I, knew that he was going to play golf at least for a year for a living. But, you know, I still didn't think that there was any locks out there. And I just, I just didn't look at it like that way. Like when he got through Q school, it's like, okay, what do we got to do to, to maintain our status on the web.com at at the time it was called web.com. And then I remember his, his, when he got his card and his rookie year, he made enough money to maintain his, playing privileges for the following year you know i sent him a note saying hey you know congrats you know you got your card of course he was he was not very happy about that he felt like he should have won by now but you know to me that was a big step is hey you got another year to you have a job for another year so i'm i always just looked at like that boy handling it that way not only is a great way to handle it but that's great parenting too uh, because no matter what sport or whatever the kid is doing that's a fantastic way to handle it well i have the benefit i have the benefit of you know 
teaching so many kids and, and, and being at a, a number of different golf facilities over my career that I've seen so many parents do it the wrong way. And, and I lived that, you know, through my father, uh, no disrespect to him. I mean, he just didn't know any better way to do it, but I, I lived that and I saw it and I thought, you know, that's just, that's just not the way to go about it. I mean, these, these, the parents project out so far what their kid's going to do. And it's like, you know, just let the kid enjoy himself. He's got a patch for something. Let, let him enjoy that and, 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 you know, get him some good attention, some instruction and, and just see where it goes. I mean, it's not, I think too many people live through their, their children and no matter what sport or activity that they're doing. Mike, what was the recruiting process like? And, and obviously he settled on Alabama, but talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we kind of had, had narrowed down to four or five schools and, and Alabama really wasn't at the, uh, probably wasn't at the top of the list. Uh, we didn't know what was at the top of the list. We were still, he was just a junior and we were trying to sort through the, the pluses and minuses of everything. And he just told us one day at the, we were having dinner, uh, out one night and he just told us he had made a decision on where he wanted to go. And and we were like, Oh really? And, uh, he said, yeah, Alabama. And I just think it was, I mean, he was so fortunate that any, you know, any choice that he made would have been a positive choice because he had great opportunities in front of him. Uh, but in hindsight, you know, Alabama, he, he wanted to win a national championship, uh, while at, at college and, he knew a couple of the players that were on the team and that were going to Alabama and felt like that gave him his best chance. And then really, I think, uh, between Jay Sewell and, uh, uh, the assistants they had, uh, God Rob that were there the two years that, uh, Justin was there. I mean, the three of them, uh, really had a positive influence on him. And, and I always tell people that, Anybody that's good at something, whether it's a tour player or a doctor or an attorney, you know, you have a lot of people along the way that you were lucky to run into. And, and, and he was just lucky to run into Jay and Scott and Rob at Alabama. And, and, you know, they continued his growth. Yeah. And the communication, I'm sure, still continues with them all, right? No, no doubt. Yeah. We actually we saw Rob at the players uh, two weeks ago and, and uh, I see Scott Limbaugh now and then. Uh, Rob Bradley's at Purdue now, and uh, we talk to Jay quite often. Yeah, I mean, we still consider them, uh, as, as I'm sure Justin does, uh, you know, some of our best friends. I mean, they were very good to him, and uh, you know, we appreciate everything they've done. Mike, your role with JT isn't unique for a teacher, but it's kind of unique for a dad. You've got a unique role in, in that, uh, you, you, I guess, still his still his go-to. Talk about what your schedule's like and how, how that plays out with, with him. Yeah, I travel probably 28, 30 weeks a year. And then when I'm home, I just pretty much teach every day, uh, most all day long. Uh, and, you know, I don't when I'm out on tour with Justin, you know, I'm not out there as a parent. I'm out there as a coach and then I'm out there as a friend as well. And uh, I like to think that we're, uh, best friends. And I, I think he would agree with that. And, uh, then I'm there as a coach. And, and lastly, I, I'm his father. And, uh, I probably don't do a good enough job of, of looking at his accomplishments and, 
and all of these done because I'm just kind of, I get focused on what can we do better? You know, like if we win, how can we win two more times? How can we win three more times? And I think Justin is that way also. We're, we just always are kind of looking out and saying, uh, you know, what, what can we do better? And, and uh, one of the great quotes that Justin has was from uh, Coach Saban, the football coach at Alabama. He says, we have a 24-hour rule where you get to enjoy a win for 24 hours, and it's time to work on the next one. And and we kind of look at things that way. So, you know, in perspective, I probably don't do a good enough job of sitting back going, you know, wow, uh, you know, he's accomplished so much. But, you know, we, we want to accomplish a lot more. Do you still have the golf ball wall where he would bring you a ball after a win? Share with us about that. Yeah. All of the Titleist golf balls are in a display uh, up at the Harmony Landing Country Club where, where I was head pro for 28 years. And uh, they're building a little room for him up there. So when I left the club, I'm, I'm pro marriage there still. But when I left the club, uh, we left them all there. We thought that it would be in better safekeeping. And, and quite honestly, a lot of his mementos, his amateur trophies and college trophies uh, are up there. Uh, just because the membership embraced him all those years. And I just really thought that it was important to share his success with the membership because they were a big part of letting him become, you know, who he was with the access that they gave him. They supported him all those years. So I just, when I, when I had the golf shop up there, I always kept all those mementos there and, when I left, I asked them, I said, you know, do you want them or do you want me to take, take them with you? And, uh, fortunately they wanted to keep them there. So you know, it's nice for the members to see where he came from and, 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 you know, return everything that they've done for him over the years too. Yeah, that is, that is real special. And you mentioned Titleist golf balls, Mike, you should be doing the interview because that's a great segue. You should be leading this because I wanted to segue into your, your long relationship with Titleist. It's never been any other share with us about that. How special that is. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing that always strikes me and Justin and I talk about this as well is, you know, early on with my involvement, uh, with Titleist. Uh, as a staff member and, you know, now leadership and ambassador member and so forth. But th- they always talk about the Titleist family and they truly are a family. I mean, I know so many people, you know, in the executive offices, you know, I've been to their plants before and it, it truly is a family of, of you know, Titleist members that are, you know, they are all all in for the same thing for, you know, for the good of the game and the, and the growth of the game and, and the growth of the brand. And, uh, I just always think about that, how they always talk about the Titleist family and, and it truly is a family. I, I can't speak to the other manufacturers, but, uh, I know Titleist has treated Justin and they've treated my wife and I as family members ever, ever since. When Titleist comes out and as they all do with new products and, and testing, Share with us a little bit about when that happens and when JT starts look because he's got the new TSR three driver in his bag and in the new stuff and the SM nines. But talk about how because this this is their livelihood and this is their this is their life and this is their legacy. Back in the day, you know, Nicholas played with three drivers his whole career. That's it, not three different brands, three clubs. But now everybody's looking for an edge, and the products keep getting better and better. 
Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I'm sure back in Jack's day, they didn't have uh, the product cycles that they have now because, you know, the consumers demand the, the latest and greatest all the time. Uh, but the flip side of that is probably that Justin probably inherited from me a complete uh, non-equipment golf nerd, if you will. Uh, I, I played with a lot of really old stuff. I, I think when I came to my club in Louisville, I was playing with a set of uh, 1963. This was in 1990. And I was playing with a set of uh, 1963 Hogan uh, blades that I had gotten from some member in Pittsburgh liked them and played with them. So I was just very, I just wasn't that fascinated like a lot of people are in the industry today with new equipment and the latest and greatest. Now, certainly, you know, when something comes out and I test it, you know, I appreciate the benefits that it gives me, but I don't, I, along with Justin, you know, he relies on the tour reps. I mean, I can tell you, Justin probably doesn't even know what kind of shafts are in his club. He just doesn't, he doesn't pay attention to that as well as I never have. Somebody gives me something, I hit it. The tour reps, you know, JJ gives him something uh, at a tour event and says, hey, you know, try this three wood or we got this shaft that you might like in your driver. If he hits it and he hits it good and it performs, he takes it and he's not interested in the torque, in the length, in the setting. <laughs> he just, he doesn't know any of that. He just, you know, I think both of us rely on other people to tell us what's good for us. And, and that, you know, Titus is, I mean, their their crew is the expert in all that. So there's no reason for us to know it because we know that, that they're going to take care of it. Mike, being a PGA professional and coming from where you just said we, we came from, you know, we came from the land of persimmon and balada and all that. And now it's it's the clubs that you played with were the clubs you played with. Talk about the importance of spending some time to be fit for this as a player because it's just this game's hard enough as it is. Let's let's try to get the right equipment to benefit your game. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, once I was a, a club pro and, and fitting became bigger and bigger. I mean, my first head pro's job, I don't even think there was such thing as, as fitting. And and once uh, you know, once I went to Harmony Landing. Uh, the fitting cards and, and all that became bigger and bigger. And, and that's when I started being forced to have to learn more and more so that, so that I could fit people. But the line that I always look back on is, is, you know, when I would be teaching somebody and their club was too upright or their club was too flat and you could see the ball direction changing because of the poor fit that they had with what they were currently using. And, and when I would suggest, you know, you know, let's, set a fitting up and let's see if we can improve this through the specs on your club. And the line that I always loved is people go, well, I'm not good enough really to, to be fit. And it's like, no, you, you're the perfect person that needs to be fit. I mean, we can find the middle ground here of here's what you're doing poorly and we can fit to that. And then that middle ground is, well, you know, with the instruction that, that we've incorporated, this is where we want to go. And whether we can change that back down the road or meet somewhere in the middle of where you are and where you want to be, I mean, we, we can, uh, fitting can, I mean, it, it'll change your ball flight almost immediately. And it's crazy that people just don't believe that that's 
that's true. Along with along with the golf ball, you know, people playing a ball that might spin more, or somebody that spins their ball too much and is launching it with too much spin, and, and we can bring it bring their ball flight down with with less spin. I mean, there's between the clubs and the balls, uh, there's so much fitting that out there that can help somebody play better. And Mike, before I let you go, I got to ask you this one too. As a PGA professional, again, talk about the importance of of players having that relationship with the right PGA professional to help them after they've been fit to help them be the best they can be. Yeah, uh, no question. Uh, you know, I think all the years that I referred to myself as a teacher, uh, I, I think I involved in uh, evolved into being a coach more than a teacher, and. You know, I had a passion for my students' improvement and, and whether that was better equipment or through the instruction that they were given. But, you know, I had to see these students on a daily basis where they were regular members at the club or where they were a non-member that was coming out once a week. And, and I had to see them on a regular basis. And I took that personal. If they didn't get better, you know, I took that personal that, that one of us was not doing their job and, and – I think it's so important for somebody, you know, other than just a recreational player that if they want to get better, they got to find somebody that has a passion to have a relationship with them and is vested in their improvement so that they can cover all the angles and, and that student or that golfer can bounce things off of them so that they can, you know, they can, between the two of them, they can help them enjoy the game yeah, more so. and enjoy it longer. Well, that's so well said. Hey, Mike, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with us today. This has been real special. How about how about some final words for our listeners from uh, from Mike Thomas? Well, you know, something that I always uh, – a couple points that I always make is every single kid or parent of a child asks me the most important thing that they can work on, and I always tell them short game. Justin always tells them short game that uh, – you know, that is where you're going to save your strokes. And the other thing that I always tell everybody when they ask me these kinds of questions is, you know, you're playing a game, make sure that you're enjoying the game and that you keep it fun. It is the game of golf. It's not the work of golf. Well, that was so special. Mike Thomas, thanks so much, my friend. And hopefully we can, uh, we can meet up down the road. All right. Thank you. Well, that was incredible. PGA professional Mike Thomas talking about his life in the game, his life as a professional, his life as a teacher, and his life as a father-teacher coach to his son, Justin Thomas. Some great advice there, folks. And uh, again, at the end, as we stress, like you said, uh, not only only take the time to get custom fit, but uh, dial in with that PGA professional of yours to help you become the best player you can be. Well, special thanks to Titleist Golf for providing Mike Thomas for us today. And thanks to you, our listeners. And we'll do it again next time. We have another episode of the Worldwide Golf Shops Insider Podcast right here at WorldwideGolfShops.com. So long, everyone.